All right, the recorder has started, so now it's official. Sunday school is starting. So we're on chapter 21 of the Second London Baptist Confession. And I realize now that I did not print out any sheets of the Second London Baptist Confession, and that's why Edgar's going to read everything, because he was shaking his head at me mockingly, so now he gets to read everything. No, I'm kidding. But before we do, uh, just by a raise of hands, has everyone been with us for the entire series? That was odd. That door just kind of eerily opened. Uh, I'll close that. Thank you. So just by a raise of hands, has everyone been here since the beginning of us studying the confession? Everybody's hands are going up. No, there are some hands that are not up. Okay. So with that... It's good for us just really quickly to be reminded why are confessions important? Anybody want to take a stab? Why are confessions important for us as Christians? Guardrails. Guardrails. Okay. Thanks, Dennis. Yeah, they're guardrails for us. They, they help us not stray into error. Anything else? Why are confessions important? Why are they good? Christian unity. Christian unity, all right, from the guy who's taken a course in confessions. That's good. Anybody else? Why are confessions important? Come in, come in. I'm going to have to ask you in front of everybody in the front of the room the first time. Okay. Don't, no, no worries. All right, so confessions, why are they important? Anybody else want to add to that? Anything? Thank you, Ted. They define what we believe. Good. So we started this months and months and months ago, and the very first session that we did was an introduction to confessions. So I just want to, this is for free, this isn't even in your notes, um, which I know you're thrilled about. Uh, I want to just go over a few points of why confessions are important and kind of just reiterate what we've talked about already. Number one, they distinguish orthodoxy from heterodoxy, or they distinguish between true belief in Christianity and those that would err from that. Number two, as as Dennis mentioned, they create boundaries like guardrails that foster a diversified orthodoxy. Okay, they create boundaries that help foster a diversified orthodoxy. Uh, They offer succinct and thorough summaries of the faith. They help define one church in relation to another. And then finally, they codify codify, uh, the church's historic witness. So I just want you to think about that as we're jumping into a confession. This isn't um, just kind of a a ho-hum curriculum, but this is something that we are getting into that really connects us to history. It helps us have guardrails for orthodoxy. It gives us real clear summaries of the faith. It gives us boundaries to have um, diversity within those boundaries. And, And again, it just helps us relate to other churches. Now, we're studying this because we're Reformed and, and we're Baptist. Um, and so we're, we're looking through this confession. But if you hadn't been with us, I just kind of wanted to give you a reminder of why it would even be important to go through confessions. All right. So now jumping in to chapter 21 of Christian liberty 
and liberty of conscience. Mm. There can be lots of things said in this little chapter, and I'm sure there will be. Can I have someone read for us paragraph one? Justin, thank you. Uh, And then any takers for paragraph two? Much shorter than paragraph one. Charlie, thank you. And then paragraph three. Anybody? Paragraph three? Any takers before I make you feel really awkward and call on you? All right, Michael, thank you. You got paragraph three. All right, uh, in descending order, please. Justin, would you start? The liberty of Christ is purchased for believers under the gospel is bound in their freedom from guilt, from the guilt of sin, the condem- uh, condemning, con- condemning wrath of God, and the severity and curse of the law. It also includes their deliverance from this present evil age, bondage to Satan, the dominion of sin, the suffering of affliction, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. In addition, it includes their free access to God and their obedience to him, not from slavish fear, but from a childlike love and willing mind. All these liberties were also enjoined in their essence by believers under the law, but under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further expanded. They are free from the yoke of ceremonial law to which the Jewish congregation was subjected. They have greater confidence of access to the throne of grace, and they have a fuller supply of God's free spirit than believers under the law usually experience. Paragraph 2. We're just going to go through it right now. God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath, uh, hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it so that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust as they do thereby pervert the main design of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction. So they wholly destroy the end of the Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of all our enemies. We might serve the Lord without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives of religious worship and the Sabbath day. Thank you, sir. All right, so we just read through... Uh, these three kind of packed paragraphs of chapter 21 of Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience. So right off the bat, what's liberty? Freedom. Freedom from work. Freedom. I heard freedom twice. Good. Come on in. Okay. Anybody else want to add anything else to liberty? That's a pretty good definition, right? Freedom. Anybody? Okay. Well, easy. Easy enough. The Greek word, here's one for you that you can use all the time, I'm sure, eleutheria, it's just easy, it rolls right off the tongue, eleutheria, which is liberty, which is what is defined as liberty, and I gave you all of those verses, this is every time that word actually shows up in the New Testament, is defined as the state of being free. So a personal freedom from servitude, confinement, or oppression. Okay, Merriam-Webster defines it as the quality or state of being free, the power to do as one pleases, freedom from physical restraint, 
freedom from arbitrary or despotic control, the positive enjoyment of various social, political, or economic rights and privileges, the power of choice. These are things that define freedom. So as we jump into this, I, I want you to see how the confession has ordered what we're going to go through. Because I think liberty of conscience is something that we all may want to really jump into and kind of dig into and figure out how that works. But the confession starts off with what is Christian liberty? So Christian liberty then is a state of being free according to the New Testament definition of the word. But we have to realize is that Christ purchases freedom for believers. I put in lots of blanks because I'm going to help you see this freedom that Christ has given us through the gospel, how we can actually see what he has freed us from. Okay, this is taken from the confession. We're going to read some verses as we go through it, but get your fingers ready because you're going to be writing some stuff down. Okay, so Christian liberty or Christian freedom is defined as a state of being free. This state of being free was purchased by Christ through the gospel. And what is this freedom from? Somebody read for us Romans chapter 6, 12 through 14. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Any hand? Emma? Great. Emma, by the way, is a member of our church and she's back from college for the summer. Woo woo! We're happy to have Emma back. Emma, I'm glad I could embarrass you in front of the church. Um, hopefully I can do that more often. So, Yeah, Emma, go for it. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Okay, so Christ is, brings us freedom from the guilt and dominion of sin. From the guilt and dominion of sin. Okay, number two, would somebody read for us Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's a real easy one, right? So we get freedom from the condemning wrath of God. Number two. So number one was from the guilt and dominion of sin. Number two is from the condemning wrath of God. Number three. Would somebody read for us Galatians 3.13? Thank you. So Christ purchases through the gospel freedom from the rigor and curse of the law. Number three, the rigor and curse of the law. Number four, somebody read for us Galatians 
chapter 1, verse 4. Feels like sword drills. We're just going back and forth, back and forth. Galatians 1. Go for it, Richie. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Christ purchases through the gospel freedom from the present evil world. The present evil world world and yes I know I'm making you write a lot of things and I'm not just doing it to be mean although there's a part of me that is wanting to do that but the reality of why we're doing this is to build a foundation okay so number five Colossians 1 13 Colossians 1 13 Go ahead, Michael. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the beloved Son. Okay, so Christ purchases, through the gospel, freedom from the bondage of Satan. The bondage of Satan. All right. Two verses here. Psalm 119, 71 and Romans 8, 28. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. statutes. Thank you, brother. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Okay, so we have, that one is one of the ones that I'm sure all of us are, are really familiar with. Um, both can be highly encouraging and maybe wrongly used in some, in some points of our life. But we see that Christ has purchased through the gospel freedom from, number six, evil of afflictions. Now, I think it's important for us as we see the freedom from that. Um, Robert Shaw was a commentator of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And he says this, which is... Again, um, the, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, the one that we are studying, uh, takes a great deal from the Westminster Confession of Faith. However, you'll see that the Westminster Confession of Faith, if you had it in front of you, this would be chapter 20. We are in chapter 21. Also, we'll see later that the 1689 actually cuts off the fourth chapter um, of, or the fourth paragraph of this, of this chapter to, to make a clear distinguishment, distinguishment? distinction between the Presbyterians and the Baptists. But this is what Robert Shaw has to say. He says, Christ does not grant to believers an entire exemption from the troubles that are common to men, but he frees them from all penal evil of afflictions. The cup of their affliction may be large and deep, but there is not one drop of judicial wrath mingled in it. That should be really comforting to our souls. And even as I preach Psalm 39 and really Psalm 38, and we've been talking about the consequences of sin, 
We can't mix up those categories. That's not the wrath of God on believers. That's discipline of God on believers that we may become more holy. But if we are justified in Christ, no longer will there be judicial wrath mingled in it because we have been bought by the blood of Jesus. Okay, so we've gone through six already that Christ has purchased the freedom for believers. So somebody read for us 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Okay, we have then that Christ has purchased freedom for believers through the gospel, freedom from the fear and sting of death. Number seven, the fear and sting of death. Now, Sam Waldron has a similar quote uh, to Robert Shaw when he says, the qualifications are to be noted carefully. We are delivered not for instance, from afflictions, but from the evil of afflictions. Not from death, but from the fear and sting of death. Now, why are we delivered from the fear and sting of death? Somebody just give us that answer. Because we're, we're going to die, but why are we delivered from the fear and the sting of it? Because we've already been declared not guilty. Amen. We can go to... Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul is talking about those that have fallen asleep or who have died uh, before uh, this, this group uh, or this church in Thessalonica. And he says, we do not grieve like the Gentiles do without hope. Because we have hope. There is no more fear and sting of death because Christ has purchased us and we will be with him for eternity. It's beautiful. All right, so Christ has purchased freedom for believers through the gospel, freedom from the very next thing, 1 Corinthians 15.20. Somebody read that for us. We're in the same general vicinity. 1 Corinthians 15.20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, Christ raised from the dead, meaning that Christ purchased through the gospel freedom from the victory of the grave. Number eight, the victory of the grave. John 5, 24. You guys are doing great. Well done. Hope this is getting your minds active and awake this morning. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, Thank you, brother. So Christ purchases freedom for believers through the gospel, freedom from everlasting damnation. Number nine. So right now, the confession has given us nine things that Christ has purchased freedom for believers. I hope that this morning, as you've had to write these down, you consider these all the more. Just how amazing the salvation of Christ that he gives to you is. And just how much freedom you have. But there's not only freedom from, but there is freedom to. So, Ephesians 3, 12. 
Ephesians 3, 12. Just read it if you're there. Ephesians 3, 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith and hope. Okay. So we have freedom to free access to God. If we are in Christ, we are have freedom to free access to God. This is what the confession talks about. And I wonder why they might be writing about this freedom. What was the context of these great confessions um, coming out? Who was the other side? Who was putting a lot of pressure on these Protestant reformers? The Catholic Church. Do you think in the Catholic Church you felt the freedom to an access to God? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think you felt that freedom. And I think they wanted to make that very clear. We don't need earthly mediators. We have the Christ. We have the ultimate mediator on our behalf. All right. Number two, 2 Corinthians 3.17. 2 Corinthians 3.17. We have freedom to the obedience and childlike. This is a long sentence. Sorry, guys. We have obedience unto him with a childlike love and willing mind. Number two, freedom to obedience unto him with a childlike love and willing mind. If you miss any of these, I will be happy to give them to you at the end. I have a quote here from Robert Shaw, and I think it's really helpful for us in our context, especially here in America, right? So when we think of liberty, we can start saying things like, give me liberty or give me death, right? We, we can get really excited about that, and we should. God has, has certainly blessed us in the place that we live and the freedoms that we get to have but Robert Shaw said this sentence, and I thought, man, that's really piercing for us. He says, but valuable as civil liberty is, it cannot be questioned that the liberty wherewith Christ makes his people free is much to be preferred. Maybe you can let that one just kind of sit in the, the cooker. Let that brew in your noodle for a while. Um, yeah, that's the thing. Let it ruin your noodle for a while. Um, so there we have uh, the first part of the first paragraph, okay, uh, of this idea of Christian liberty. And then we get this sentence, and I got a real long quote. I don't know if we're going to get to it. I might just give you guys a link for you guys to, to read it. Actually, I already gave you the link. And by the way, if you're not reading through the footnotes, you've already lost people there was an opportunity for one of you to get up here or just stand up and start singing something that would have been so helpful for all of us. I'm looking at you, I'm just sad. I'm wagging my finger at you. God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love.
Well done. Well done. All right, Brandon, you get a sticker, buddy. Well done. Well done. So I, the reason why I put that there is because now you would have to backtrack onto that first page that we actually have. Well, I think, yeah, we just moved on to the second page. But you have freedom from guilt and the dominion of sin. And really, I think as Christians, one of the things that we struggle with so often is when that little voice comes into your head and says, yeah, that's great. You're a Christian now. But remember when you did this? And you're like, oh, that's right. Oh, no, I, I can't do this. I'm such a hypocrite, right? And, and really, verse 2 of that hymn, which I don't have. Wait, I can get there. I can get there. I don't have it memorized like you guys do. You guys were ballers. Oh, there it is, Dennis. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's it. That's it right there, right? Is that we actually look to Christ who has made an end of all our sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't sin now and we need to ask forgiveness of it. But when that happens, that's it. We're justified. So don't listen to that whisper, right? Uh, And I think the confession is so pastoral um, when we read something like that, that we're freed from the guilt and dominion of sin. Okay, we've gotten off track um, but like I said, pay attention to your footnotes. They can be helpful um, uh, as, we, as we continue. All right. So the next thing that we see that's important and may have caused you to, to scratch your noggin um, was in the second paragraph, or in paragraph one, the second paragraph, I don't know how to, else to say it, uh, but it's within that first header. It said, all which were common also to the believers under the law for the substance of them. What is it saying here? Somebody help me out. You guys teach me. What's happening here? What is the confession trying to tell us? We just read all those things that Christ has freed freed us from, and then they go and say something like, all which were common also to believers under the law for the substance of them. Who's he talking about? What's that? There was liberty then. There was liberty then in the Old Testament, right? Sometimes we can make such a a, a clear Old Testament bad, right? New Testament good. We can create these, these contrasts between the Old and New Testament. But remember, guys, there are believers in the Old Testament. There are believers that we will spend eternity with in the Old Testament. So somebody read for us Galatians 3. 7 through 9. Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith Thank you, brother. We see Paul writing to the Galatians about Abraham and his faith, the one that we can look to and want to be like, right? That's that's the faith that we are being uh, told to emulate. Then we have Hebrews chapter 11, 
uh, when you have time, go back and read through the whole chapter. That kind of sheds light as well on this liberty available in the Old Testament, as well as the fact that the law itself was liberating for some in the Old Testament. Not all, but for some. And so we can read Psalm 19, I'll do that, uh, verses 7 through 9, which says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. Okay, all of Psalm 19 really is talking about scripture, general revelation, and special revelation. But there specifically talking about the law. I'm just going to give you guys this link for a founder's article uh, written by Tom Nettles that really focuses in on this aspect of liberty uh, in the Old Testament. I would encourage you to go there, but for time's sake, I'm going to skip over that lengthy quote. Okay, so the law in the OT was liberating for some, but it is further enlarged in the New Testament. And really, there are three ways that this was further enlarged in the New Testament. Number one, the freedom from the ceremonial law. Praise be to God because we had the ultimate sacrifice, right? So number one would be freedom from the ceremonial law. And I realize I didn't make you write these out. You're welcome. Um, you've already written a lot. Um, but a, a further enlargement would be the greater boldness in prayer, right? This kind of goes back to that freedom um, from having the ability to approach the throne of God, the free access to God. We have a greater boldness in prayer that we can seek God and pray to him. And then we have fuller supplies of the spirit. Now, Pastor Joel has been preaching through 1 Samuel, and we have seen kind of the outpouring of the spirit and, and, and kind of the back and forth in that and the interplay of, of how God is, is giving the spirit and, and how he sends or takes away. And, and so there, it, this is almost like a shadow in the Old Testament of how much we see the spirit being poured out and at times. And then we see just the fuller supplies of the spirit just being dumped out onto believers at Pentecost. The fact that you guys don't need to go to a mediator all of us, but that we can pray to God, that we can have gifts from the Spirit. Now, I'm not talking about certain gifts, and neither would the confession. Uh, the confession would be talking about just the ability of all of us having gifts of the Spirit that the Lord would give us to further do ministry. Okay, so this then is of Christian liberty. We have spent all of this time with Christian liberty, talking about what we've been freed from, talking about our new bold access to, talking about the enlargement of our liberty, that we don't have to, uh, you know, every week go in and, and get something slaughtered for our sin. You know, we don't have to be worrying about that, that we don't have to go to someone to pray to us, to God, for ourselves, but we can do that ourselves. Um, that we have the conviction of the Spirit, that we have the Holy Spirit actually helping sanctify us, helping us pray to God when we don't know what to say, that the Spirit groans on our behalf. We have all of these things that have been enlarged in the New Testament. 
And it's on that backdrop, it's on all of this backdrop, that the confession then moves to paragraph two, God alone is the Lord of conscience. So friends, really quickly, this is where it gets a little bit spicy. What are matters of conscience? Convictions, okay. What else? What are matters of conscience? Oh, you want specifics, Andrew? Sure. I just wanted to clear. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Would you happen to have a specific guess? I'll throw it. Yeah, this is a this is a real easy one. Alcohol. Sure. Matter of conscience. Yeah. There are plenty more, right? There are plenty more than just alcohol or, you know, uh, whether you homeschool or you don't homeschool. Or let's, let's go back even uh, a little bit further, uh, not actually that much further, but in these last two years, masks or no masks, right? Wow. We realize real quick that there can be conscience issues. And this can get real, like I said, and I think Dennis said it before, so I'm just stealing his words now. It can get real spicy, I like what Mark Dever has to say about this. Here's a quote that he says, Conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong. So, we've seen how the confession has ordered all the liberty, all the things that Christ has bought for us. Now let's dive into... Amen. Let's dive into what is the conscience. So the Greek word... Again, that you can use at parties to impress your friends. Sune desis means the inward faculty of distinguishing right and wrong. Okay? It's the, um, the ability inside of you to realize morality. What is right and what is wrong? How do I distinguish these things? Somebody read for us. Um, Romans 2, 15. Talk about spicy. Let's go to Romans chapter 2, verse 15. And then I'm going to move very fast because I realized, but I did this on, with good reason. Okay. Romans 2, 15. shows that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Okay, so I want you to notice something about the conscience. It can either convict you or it can confuse you. So it almost seems like, oh, there's just too much here with the conscience. How do I know if my conscience is, is helping me here? How do I know if this is the actual Holy Spirit convicting me? How do I know if this is just my flesh that's battling within me? Those are great questions to ask. There's a tiny, that's not tiny, but there's a little book um, called Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. I would highly recommend this book to everyone in this church. I think this book would be more relevant now than maybe they even intended it to be. So if you have time, go and pick that up. I think that would be a wonderful book for you to read. Now, here's another opportunity. Uh, ooh, sorry. Uh, I'll refrain myself. Uh, another opportunity here uh, for somebody to possibly look at footnotes. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, 
And I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Who said it? Whoa, that was too many people all at one time. Well done. Okay. And if you tried to look at the footnotes, you saw. Cheater, (laughs) cheater, pumpkin eater. I wasn't going to give it to you. Okay, so, okay, stickers for everybody then who who was able to to answer that. So then let's look at what the confession is going to help us out here. Okay, I I really appreciate, again, the pastoralness of this confession because it's going to help us see the conscience. It's going to help us see, okay, how do I use my conscience in an appropriate way? So the confession says... That with the conscience, we're free from commandments of men which are in any way contrary. Any way contrary to the word of God. Okay. Contrary to the word of God. Um, Let's read Acts chapter 4, 18 through 20. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Okay, and then we also have Acts 5, 29, which I'll read. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Okay, so what the confession is going to help us see very clearly here is that the commandments of men, which are in any way contrary to the word of God, are not for your conscience. Okay, to help train your conscience, you need to go back to the word of God and realize that those are the commandments which we follow. So the confession leaves open. It says men are free and anything that is contrary to his word. And at, at first you might say, ooh, I don't, I don't like those words, but the reality is they're saying, listen, don't allow someone to throw a yoke on you that is not contained in the scripture. Because that's not godly. That's not helpful. Whether in your conscience you, Dennis brought up, whether you, you know, uh, are okay with drinking alcohol or you're not okay with drinking alcohol. That, that's perfectly fine. You're allowed to make your own decisions on those things, but it's the reality when there's a commandment of men or going to masks or going to, you know, whatever, fill in the blank in that long list of line there. If there's going to be a commandments of men which are contrary to the word of God, then you must have your conscience. You must know that you, you're free from anything that's contrary. Okay, continuing. Following these commandments actually betray Christian liberty. So if you're going to yoke yourself to a, maybe a, something that you were brought up with um, in your household, that you saw that you would do this thing, and then you would say, if you're not doing this like we are, then you're in sin. If you're doing that, you're, you're actually trying to yoke somebody to something that the word doesn't say. And so here this morning, you're free to anything contrary from the word of God. Okay, so 
and trying to get through. Uh, I'll stay up here for all those wonderful spicy questions. I'm sure you have, um, and you can bring them to me. But it might be really easy for us to start pointing the finger out at things like the government or the Roman Catholic Church or cults. But remember that you can easily create these extra biblical laws and then judge others by them. You can. I can. This is where matters of conscience come into play. Now, there are two main areas in the New Testament that get a lot of coverage here on the conscience. That's Romans 14, 1 through 15, 7, and 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 31. In one minute, we do not have time to unpack these things. But what I have done is I've connected a little graph at the very back of your handout. And that graph has a really interesting thing. It comes from that book. If there's a publisher in Crossway in here, I'm sorry. I did not ask permission for that. Um, they can come at me, and then that will be really scary. So don't, don't contact Crossway, okay? Uh, please. A- anyways, um, I still recommend buying the book. Buy the book. It's great. It's a great book. Okay. So all of that being said, go in there, and it looks at a really helpful graph of how we can become either um, someone who might have the strong conscience but then we are looking down at others, or we could be the one who has the weak conscience in one of these matters of conscience, and then we're judging others. So both ways are sinful in how they're interacting with the other people. And really, we don't want that to happen, right? We always want to be tripping over each other to reconcile with one another. But we also want to be very clear, and the confession is very clear, that we are free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in any thing contrary to his word. Okay, so a couple of categories then we need to continue in. You can see in there the, the confession talks about implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience. And again, you've got to remember the context in which the confession was written. It was written in the wake of them leaving the Roman Catholic Church the Roman Catholic Church, very specifically talking about an implicit faith. John Calvin was not too kind uh, to that kind of reasoning. I've got a quote in there from him. And then I, I would recommend you to the confession, or uh, sorry, the confession. Um, uh, John, Cal- or John Calvin's work, um, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Faith, what is it? Religion, yeah, okay, that's what I thought. Uh, it's in there, I've got chapter book for you to go and read. It is so encouraging to, to read on faith from John Calvin, um, so, who certainly had an influence on, on this confession. Okay, so implicit faith would basically say you're requiring someone to believe what we teach is the word of God without proof. An absolute and blind obedience would say, even though you don't have any proof, you must follow it. The confession says, if you're doing that, that is the exact opposite of what Christian liberty and conscience is. You must not do that. You must not blindly follow them. You must go to the word to be helped and to know what is true. Okay, finally, the last paragraph, which we get just a little bit of time in. Um, Christian liberty flaunted and perverted. So, Christian liberty of conscience 
used to practice or cherish a sin, Christian liberty of conscience used to practice or cherish a sin, is not Christian liberty. It's sin. The line of thinking destroys the beauty of the gospel in Christian liberty. Christ came to save us from sin. He didn't save us so that we would revel in our sin. The famous uh, Romans chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. Shall we continue to abound in sin? By no means. And then finally we have what Christian liberty is summarized as. Being delivered out of the hands of our enemies. Being able to serve the Lord without fear and holiness and righteousness before him. All the days of our lives. Amen and amen. Whew. Let me pray. You are dismissed. Come at me with questions. I want to hear that.